Today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. As we kind of get situated here and get ready for the sermon, um, just, you know, I want to give some encouragement to folks. Kara uh, Levin uh, this week featured one of our own members, uh, braving the cold, Paul Brigge, my father, uh, was captured at Theodore Worth Park, uh, declaring that winter was his favorite season. And so... Um, <laughs> So he's very bravely, uh, bravely showing the camera. I was disappointed that he was not wearing shorts, though, when he was out <laughs> cross-country skiing. That was sort of, you know, had he known the cameras would be there, I think he would have played that up. And as we're cold this week, and you're feeling cold and feeling bad, um, Ashley and Ed Ginty, they're not here in the service right now, they're at the 9 a.m., but um, she gave him a trip to Lutzen for his birthday. And so on Wednesday, it's going to be like minus 15 is the high, and winds will be whipping on them. So just picture them on a chairlift. <laughs> freezing for his birthday. And let the, the pain of others be an encouragement to you. Preacher uh, Tom Long, great, great, great preacher, great professor of preaching, first at Princeton Seminary and then at the Candler School of Theology uh, down uh, at Emory in Atlanta, he wrote this as he was reflecting on this passage, the Beatitudes. He says this. He says, the preamble to the U.S. Constitution states, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, 
establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And Long continues, this introductory statement defines the essence of the nation's vision for itself and expresses the sort of citizenry it hopes to embody. In a similar manner, the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the Church of Jesus Christ, and the Beatitudes are its preamble. The Beatitudes proclaim what is, in light of the kingdom of heaven, unassailably true. They describe the purpose of every holy law, the foundation of every custom, and the aim of every practice of this new society, this colony of the kingdom, the church called and instructed by Jesus. It quickly becomes apparent that the Beatitudes turn the world's values upside down. I think those are a wonderful and fitting introduction to what is one of the most important passages of Scripture there is. And so far in the Gospel of, of Matthew, we've heard a lot about Jesus. We haven't really heard much from Him. And with the Sermon on the Mount, that changes. Matthew has told us that Jesus preached a simple message, a message that He shared in common with John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus unpacking and fleshing that simple message out. This is what a life of repentance, of, of turning from our sins and turning to God, a life of the kingdom, this is what it looks like. But before diving into what Jesus says, I also want to draw your attention to how Matthew is setting this scene. And so we can recall that, that Matthew is always making sure to connect Jesus to what came before, the, the deep and the surprising continuity with how God has always been working across the centuries and here across the Testaments. This fits with what we hear from Jesus himself at the end of our passage, where he says he came not to destroy, not to abolish what came before, but instead to fulfill. And so Matthew has Jesus on top of a mountain, sitting down, and then teaching his disciples God's law. Does that remind you of anyone else, anything else in Scripture? Moses at Mount Sinai. Remember Moses, he, he had led the people through the Red Sea, and, and, and they had gone to the wilderness, to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he went up and received the Ten Commandments, brings them back down, and the people commit themselves to living righteously, to living by what they had heard. And so here we have Jesus going up on a mountain to deliver an authoritative interpretation of God's law, teaching what it means to be righteous, living by these commands after his own passage through the waters of baptism and his own wilderness journey to be tempted by the devil. And so Matthew's portrait of Jesus is painting him as a new and better Moses, the one of whom Moses himself spoke in Deuteronomy when he said, after me, God is going to raise up another prophet like myself, and God's going to put his word in his mouth, and he will teach the people. And so Matthew is putting up all kinds of signals and signs to say that promise is being fulfilled right now at this very moment. Listen up. And so we can't understand what's happening, fully understand and appreciate what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, if we don't keep this bigger picture in mind. This is Jesus laying down the constitution for the new kingdom community. 
We're going to look at three aspects of this new community, playing off this word attitudes from, from Beatitudes. And of full disclosure, the word Beatitude has nothing to do with our English word attitude at all. They have a completely different root, but they are homophones. They sound similar, and it's punny. And as a preacher, I can't pass up an opportunity to hit you with a good pun. And so you think of a B attitude, well, a B student. That's a pretty good student, but great inflation. It's not that great. Uh, so these are not B attitudes. No, these are God's a attitudes. Uh, see what I'm doing there? All right. So these are the A attitudes that God wants us to have towards ourselves, towards the world, and towards Scripture. So A attitudes. Okay. So we're going to look at those, those three aspects. So first, the attitude towards ourselves that, that, that Jesus' kingdom vision commends. But let's pick back up on the constitutional analogy because the question that every polity, every, every gathering, every society of, of, of people faces when constituting itself is this question, who belongs? Who, who, who do these rules, these rights, these responsibilities, who do they pertain to? And so in a big, you know, kind of a, 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 we think of a whole country, a whole nation state, uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? Of America, who, who does that belong to? And that's been a question that our country has been hashing out since its inception. Expanding that definition mostly, and you know, why am I a citizen of the United States of America? I just happened to be born here, but you're born here, you're a citizen, you belong here. Other people belong because they, they've been naturalized. Other people belong here, but we say you only belong here temporarily, so you have a travel visa or, or a temporary work visa. Other people say, well, you can live here as long as you want. You have a green, hard, green card, you're a legal permanent resident, but, but, but you can't vote or, or, or serve on juries or hold elected office. Who belongs where and how they belong and for how long, these are things that, that our, our, our polities are constantly negotiating and debating. And beyond our country, we can think of the, the, the little private societies that we all belong to, that have their own rules for belonging. Amy and I are members of a, of a very prestigious club, long, an old club. Um, it's the YMCA. And who belongs at the YMCA? Uh, anyone who fills out a membership application and pays their dues and generally behaves themselves at the Y. You, you, you belong. You can come for as long a, a, as you want. And if you have a guest pass, that's kind of like a temporary you know, it's like a, like a visitor's visa or something like that. But, but even go down from the why. Let's think of uh, your family gatherings. That's even maybe more contested territory. Who belongs there? And so every polity, every society, every group is constantly wrestling with these questions of who belongs. And so then the question is, what about the kingdom of heaven? Who belongs to that? And there was plenty of answers to this question floating around in Jesus' day. You know, the, the, the one answer you could give is, well, the kingdom of heaven, it belongs to every uh, circumcised Hebrew male. The children of Abraham, that's who belong to the kingdom. And others would say, well, yep, 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 but let's include uh, Gentile converts. They also belong to the kingdom. And others, like the Pharisees, would say, well, ethnic identity is, is necessary but not sufficient. And so you also need to adhere to our interpretation of, of, of the Mosaic law. If you do that, then you belong to the kingdom. You, you, you remember. And then there were these communities of, of separatists. The Essenes is one of them that we know of. And they were, you know, they said the whole society is hopelessly corrupt. 
Even if you try to live faithfully within it, there's no way you can. It's too tainted. It's beyond saving. And so they went out in the desert, and they formed these little communities, and they said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who live by and live in our little sectarian communities. So those were the live options in Jesus' day. And so here Jesus is up on a mountain, and he has a completely different vision of who belongs in the kingdom. It's not just the children of Abraham. It's not just the law observant. It's not just some tiny little faithful remnant out somewhere. Blessed, Jesus says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so whoever is poor in spirit, according to Jesus, that's who belongs in the kingdom. And it's really from this first beatitude, this first statement of blessing, that the rest of them flow. And the Beatitudes, they're, they're endlessly meaningful. And so I can't hope to begin to say everything that there is to say about them. No one can, no one ever will. And, and every preacher, we always have to be careful when we're giving the Beatitudes that, that we don't over-spiritualize them or we don't under-spiritualize them. And, and, and we don't give the people the wrong idea that when Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that he's saying, well, blessed are those who can make themselves poor. Or saying, well, if you're poor and destitute... Actually, surprise, you're blessed. The first would be to make belonging to the kingdom primarily about what we do rather than what God has done. And the second error is to say something that's patently false. Being poor, being destitute, being down on your luck isn't good. It's bad. We need to hear instead these words, these beatitudes as gospel, as good news. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom is for and includes such people, people who have absolutely nothing in terms of earthly power or status, people who have nothing to commend themselves, people who, who, who the real world has deemed worthless. Jesus says, you are worthwhile. And life in the kingdom, it especially concerns the poor, the kind of folks who were drawn to Jesus. If we, you know, we're reading the very end of Matthew chapter 4, right, what comes right before our passage, we would read about the kind of people who came out to Jesus as he was ministering. These were people who were afflicted, who were sick, who had disabilities, who, 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 who were plagued by, by, by unclean spirits. That's the kind of people who were drawn to Jesus, the kind of people Jesus was drawn to. And so the kingdom, it, it, it belongs to such as those people who, who come from a place of genuine spiritual poverty. And the word that Matthew uses for poor in spirit, that word for poverty, it's a very, very strong word. It, it, it's related to the word for a beggar, and it's this abject, you know, groveling on your knees poverty. And spiritual poverty, it, it comes from this place when we recognize there's no claim we have to make on God God doesn't owe us anything. We have no sense of spiritual entitlement, spiritual self-satisfaction, spiritual smugness that it's so easy, so tempting to walk around with where we compare ourselves to other people and go, you know, I'm actually not doing so bad. And God, I've been good enough. So isn't that good enough for you? Right? Spiritual poverty comes when, when we realize there's nothing that we can do or nothing that we need to do to make God love us more than he already does. Spiritual poverty is what we need really for grace to be grace, unmerited favor. 
Spiritual poverty, it's captured by those beautiful words in the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, where it says, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Or we see spiritual poverty in, in the gospel of Luke when Jesus tells that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee where he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. That's where the kingdom starts, with with grace that then flows out into a life of gratitude. And so let those be our foundational constitutional principles for this particular colony of Jesus' followers. Grace and gratitude. Grace and gratitude. So in the first four Beatitudes, the first four blessed are those. Jesus is, is blessing the empty. People who are spiritually poor, begging, reaching up to heaven. And he blesses the empty in order to fill them so that they can reach out then into the world. And that's what the next three Beatitudes are about. People who reach out into the world with Christ's mercy and his purity and his peace. But Jesus also shares that when you reach up to God and you reach out to the world, the response is going to be that you get knocked down flat on your back. But Jesus says that too is a sign that you belong to the kingdom when you are reviled and spoken ill of and and persecuted for my sake. Remember that Jesus is speaking to a, a group of disciples, many of whom the tradition holds would be killed for their faith in him. And the earliest Christians reading this gospel or hearing it read, they would have been this minuscule community in the midst of an empire that was hostile to them and their claims. I mean, within the first decades of Christianity, maybe a few tens of thousands of Christians in an empire filled with millions and millions of people. And Christians were, were, were hated by the Romans because they refused to go along with the imperial propaganda that Caesar was Lord, and he was the source of salvation and peace and beatitude. And they refused to bow the knee to anyone but Jesus, and so they were a threat to social cohesion. Those are the common slurs against Christians. They were antisocial. They were atheists. They were haters of the human race. When you're in charge of a vast empire, you, know, you, you feel like you can't afford dissidents because they weaken your control, and and without this really strong, strict social cohesion, everything's going to fall apart. If you have a big empire, you can't afford to have these little brush fires sparking where one of them gets out of control. And so social cohesion, adherence to the party line, that means everything. But Jesus says, don't give in, because when you're persecuted because of your faithfulness to me, it means that you're in the kingdom. Second century, uh, great Christian church father, 
said in the face of sporadic persecution, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And a perfect illustration in our own day and age of what it means to be faithful in the midst of, of the truth of this beatitude, that blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted for my name's sake, uh, comes from just in December, actually, uh, in, in China, in, in Chengdu, where uh, recently there's been a reassertion by uh, President Xi and his government of state control over, uh, over religion. And his goal isn't so much to eliminate it as to make sure that, that whoever is practicing their faith, Christian, Muslim, whatever, they're doing so in such a way that's consistent with the, the, the priorities of the state and the party. And the Chinese government is actually even coming up with a state-approved translation of the Bible that will be consistent with socialist values. And so the government's been shutting down house churches and, and churches that lack government authorization, including one called the Early Rain Covenant Church, whose pastor Wang Yi was arrested in December and he was imprisoned because he refused to submit to the Chinese government's require, requirements for official churches including having uh, closed-circuit television cameras pointing out at your congregation so you could do facial recognition for the people who are there, and that would factor into their, you know, social, your, basically your social capital score that the government provides with everyone, which has all sort of nefarious connections to um, your freedom and your status. And he had prepared a letter to release uh, to the world uh, knowing that his imprisonment was, was imminent. And in this Letter, he says, he begins it by saying, On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to, and it is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. So Pastor Yi, he's not just preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's living it and, and, and truly great is his reward in heaven. So that's the attitude towards ourselves, this spiritual poverty, which Jesus says in the end will include persecution. But the question then is, what should the world's attitude, the church's attitude, be towards the world that hates it? And remarkably, Jesus says, it's not to hate back, but to be salt and light. And remember that Matthew's little house churches, I mean, they were tiny and they were scattered across this vast empire. And so Christians were, you know, numbering in the tens of thousands at this point in an empire of millions. And Jesus has the audacity to say that these little communities were salt of the earth and light of the world. You know, Jesus' words were prophetic, but if you were hearing these words in the year 90, the year 100, the year 150, the year 200 even, they were not obviously true. But Jesus' message is that little things, tiny communities, can make a huge difference. Just like it only takes a little light to enlighten the whole pitch dark room, or, or how much salt does it take to season your food? I mean, just a tiny, tiny amount. 
And so Jesus' message for the church is don't hate the world, embrace it, love it, pray for it, bless it, especially when it hates you. I love how Eugene Peterson, in, in the message, he translates this part of the passage. He, he, he has Jesus saying, so let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be the salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors of the world. That is so beautiful. Bringing out the God flavors in the world, bringing out the God colors in this world. And there's a debate that sometimes goes on, you know, whether the church is supposed to be attractional, trying to draw people in, or incarnational, out there serving and blessing the world in Jesus' name. And and what's the right answer? It's, of course, both. Both. Whatever we do, when the church is doing what we're supposed to be doing, we'll be attractive, we'll be beautiful. And so what if we looked in the mirror at our own community of disciples? What's beautiful about us? What's attractive about us? It sort of feels like a weird question because we don't want to be prideful. And of course, that's, Jesus does not want the church to draw attention to itself for its own sake, but so that people see good deeds and give glory to their Father in heaven. And I have to say, there are beautiful things that I see in this community that I want to name and affirm. I think really this, this, this genuine sense of when we see each other, we're really glad to see each other. We care about each other. We love one another. If, you a new, if you're a new person, we will acknowledge you and welcome you to the extent uh, that you're comfortable. We won't, we'll welcome you. We won't cling to you. I think that that's good. You know, that, that other things, just long faithfulness in unspectacular ways. I mean, shoot, the fact that loaves and fishes have been going on for over 10 years, even in the midst of some real hard years of struggle, that that kept going, that's a beautiful a beautiful thing. I had a friend once who said, you know, we're kind of like a comic book shop. The great thing about a comic book shop is sort of everyone fits in there, even if they don't fit in elsewhere. And I, and I love that. I would, I would love for that to always be true. And I think it's beautiful, too, that we're always looking for ways to be creative, always looking for ways to partner with other people for the glory of God and the good of the city. And, and it's not about us. It's not about building a platform, building a brand, It's about glorifying our Father in heaven. And so that's the attitude Jesus wants us to have towards this world, salt and light. And the attitude he wants us to have for ourselves is is this spiritual poverty that lets grace be grace and gratitude be gratitude. But lastly, I want to touch very briefly on what Jesus says about what's supposed to be our attitude towards Scripture. That's the very end of the passage, verses 17 through 20. And we can see from this passage, and we read Paul's letters in the New Testament, there's always been this sneaking suspicion that that Christianity wants to do away with the Old Testament. In fact, one of the reasons that we, the Christian canon of Scripture developed uh, was because of a a, a famous heretic named Marcion. Plug for the Like Trees Walking podcast, we recently had a two-part interview with uh, Dr. Brent Strawn from uh, down at Emory, and it was a great interview, and he talked about this. And, and, and so that Marcion basically said that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the one in the New. And so he started cutting texts out of the Bible. And even his own New Testament um, was a very circumscribed uh, uh, version of the Gospel of Luke. And so he said, no, no, the, we don't need all these other old books. We just need this one collection. And, and, and the broader church responded by saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't throw all that stuff out. And so here is the look, the, 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 the collection of authorized books we're going to use. 
And so Marcion, he lost that battle, but he died, but his spirit continues to live on, especially amongst Christians. And I think many of us face this temptation to basically say, well, we don't need that old stuff anymore. We got Jesus. And Jesus will have none of that. And in these verses, we get his only book review that he ever gave. Jesus' book review of the Law and the Prophets, and, and he could not give them a more hearty endorsement. And it helps, too, if we look at the Old Testament and we think of it not as the Old Testament, but this was Jesus' Bible. And we don't know much about his childhood, but we do know that when he was 12 years old and he was separated from his parents, they found him in the temple quizzing the Bible scholars. And so Jesus' message is clear. Kingdom people need Scripture as their kingdom charter. And so if we want to know how to live what Jesus means by righteousness in this passage, then we need both Jesus and Scripture together. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which means that he himself is the proper interpretive lens for Scripture. And so when we look to Jesus and through Jesus, the meaning of Scripture will become clear. And his message is never just, oh, ignore that part. Unless we think that Jesus is just, you know, simply relaxing the law. You can't think that and read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount where he actually makes his interpretation scripture. You know, it's not just thou shall not murder. That's easy. Probably none of us in this room have ever murdered anybody. I hope. But it's don't hate your brother. That's a lot harder. And it's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't lust in your heart. Jimmy Carter gave an infamous interview with Playboy magazine when he was running for president, and they talked about him. You know, have you ever, have you ever you know, done anything bad? And he said, well, I've lusted in my heart. And he was roundly mocked for that. But Jesus teaches us to obey the law like grown-ups so that we can avoid the twin dangers of, of, of literalism on one hand and, and, and just a liberalism on the other. And literalism that, that makes a new law out of the gospel. You know, the kind of approach to Christianity that says, well, what's important is, you know, don't dance or, or chew or go with those who do, you know? Or the kind of liberalism that says, well, Scripture says it, whatever we need to say in order according to, you know, sort of stay in the good graces of the spirit of the age. And Jesus says, avoid those twin dangers, the, the Scilia and the Charbonus. I love what Dale Bruner He's a biblical scholar, and his two-volume commentary on Matthew is one that I'm relying heavily on in this series. And it's, it's, you know, maybe if it was like a desert island and you get one biblical commentary, these would be the ones I take with me. They're that good. That might be a sad fate to only be able to take biblical commentaries with you to a desert island. But, you know, it works. If you were on a desert island, these are the two-volume Matthew commentary. You, your soul would be satisfied. If you had that, it's that good. It's really that good. And, and Bruner, uh, he, was a, um, he went to Princeton Sam and then uh, taught at Whitworth College for a long, long time. And, and, and he's no fundamentalist. But he's trying to basically distill the message of, this, of these last few verses. And he says, if we sit loose to Scripture, we are going to hell. That, in English, is what this paragraph has been trying to teach. And I think Bruner is true to the spirit of something else, uh, uh, um, the Theological Declaration of Barman. And this was a document that was produced by the Confessing Church Movement in Germany in 1934. And this was in response to the rise of the so-called German Christians um, who, when the debate raised, raged over how, you know, Nazified should we allow the church to be? And the German Christians said, oh, really, a lot, very much. 
you know, that the rise of the Third Reich, that this is actually consistent with God's purposes and God's great plan for history. And so, you know, we've reached this kind of new golden era. And the confessing church movement said, no way, no how. And they laid out, they laid out this statement of six of their foundational principles of how they were standing against the German Christians and the Nazification of the church. And so Karl Barth, a great Swiss theologian, he largely authored this document, and the first principle is one that relates so much to what Jesus is saying here about our attitudes to our scripture. And I close with these words. So the Declaration of Barman says, in the view of the errors of the German Christians of the present Reich Church government, which are devastating the church, and are also thereby breaking up the unity of the German evangelical, and that in evangelical there means Protestant, Church, we confess the following evangelical Protestant truths. Number one, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that one is a thief and a robber. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 1 and 9. And the declaration continues, Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and besides this one word of God, still other events and powers, figures and truths as God's revelation. A powerful statement if there ever was one in the face of those who are saying, well, yeah, we got God's word, but look at this other amazing thing that God has done to our nation, which was broken and brought to its knees at the end of the first great war. God has raised up, he's brought this new Reich, and so that in and of itself is a revelation of God's purposes for the world. And the question for the church was, how do you stand against that? And the theological declaration of Barman says, start with this bedrock principle. And so if we want to belong to the kingdom, let us have the right attitude. God's grace for our spiritual poverty, God's love for this world, and God's word as our guide. With those attitudes, we will never go astray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.